Welcome to the HJ Talks About Abuse podcast, the podcast where we talk about sexual abuse cases in the hope that it will assist listeners in openly discussing topics which have been ignored for too long. This podcast is brought to you by the abuse team at Hugh James. We are lawyers, so we tend to speak about the legal aspects of abuse cases, but we aren't too shy to speak up about the broader issues faced by survivors of sexual abuse too. We hope that you find it interesting, but more than that, if you are a survivor of sexual abuse, we hope that you find our discussion empowering. Hello, my name is Alan Collins. I'm the partner who heads up the abuse team at Who James, and I'm joined by my colleague Danielle Vincent. Hi, Danny. Hi, Alan. In this podcast, we're going to be discussing a recently reported case concerning a sailor who's recently been jailed for rape on a Royal Navy vessel. But before we get underway with this podcast, I need to remind you that the subject matter of this podcast you could find distressing, disturbing, upsetting. And so if you feel that you may be troubled by the content, now is the time to switch off and go and do something else. Otherwise, please do stay with us. So, Danny, you spotted the newspaper report or the media report, rather, in respect of this case. James Carnegie, age 33, from Leeds, has recently been jailed at Truro Crown Court for six years for raping a woman, it, it says here in the, in the media report, on a Royal Navy ship whilst the ship was in foreign waters. So obviously a very upsetting and a disturbing case and the media correctly reports that the victim of the rape showed considerable courage and fortitude in coming forward and making the complaint and pursuing it all the way to trial, resulting in Carnegie being convicted. We see this many, many times. Victims shouldn't have to find that inner courage to come forward. I don't want to detract from it, but, you know, the way of the world is, is that we would like to think that we were a bit more advanced and people wouldn't feel as though they were under pressure not to report. And of course, these things shouldn't be happening in the first place anyway. So, you know, it's another example of someone exerting considerable power and violence and force in order to get what they want. In this case is um, subjecting the victim to no doubt a very terrifying physical and psychological ordeal. Yeah, you're, you're right, Alan. And I think this particular article raises things that we've talked about quite often before but also you you know I think it's very important that we keep discussing these things so this is obviously two people that are employed they're on a ship that is at sea so there's concerns there I'm I'm sure if she reported of potentially what would happen there normally these situations it can be a boys club type of situation that she may have thought that she wasn't going to be believed because you know, it openly says that they were watching a film in her room that she didn't, or his room, should we say, but there was no consent there. And that she was reluctant to report, but the main factor for her in this situation was because she didn't want it to happen to anyone else. And that's mm. one of the, the main things, isn't it, is if a perpetrator gets away with it once, and we often see this, is that a perpetrator will use their position or manipulate or suggest that the individual through gaslighting won't be believed, that they'll get away with it once and then continue to act in this way. Yes, in this uh, abusive way it's almost as if they feel as though they've been given some kind of green light to carry on as they like um abusing people for want of a better phrase 
So we see these traits, don't we, time and time again. It's this, you know, the perpetrator being in a position to exert for very wrong reasons power, power over the victim in getting what they want and then exercising power to stop them from reporting and making a, a complaint. We see this time and time again, you know, these perpetrators seem to derive some kind of, I don't know, what's the what's the word, pleasure or kick or whatever from this exertion of power over the over their victim or victims. And of course, the victims time and time again, as we see in our daily work, are often very reluctant to come forward if they, and indeed in many cases, they don't come forward at all, do do yeah. they? We only ever see the tip of the iceberg. It's because of this fear of the unknown, the fear of the unknown consequences. Will I be believed? Will I be in the newspapers? Will I be in the media? What are my family going to think? What are the friends and neighbours going to think? And so on. All very natural and understandable fears. Although, of course, we know from our work in reality, those fears are often misplaced. But nevertheless, they're genuine fears and understandable ones. My thought on this, especially from, from a female perspective as well, is that the Royal Navy and the military in, in general it is very male-led still. There's less women serving, despite the fact that women are getting to higher positions. But, but you know, this is going to be, I'm sure at the time, something that she would have probably also considered was going to potentially impact her career maybe wrongly or rightly she may have had that impression but I'm sure that if you're in a male dominated world and that you know a prosecution didn't come I'm sure that she probably would have felt at the time there's going to be an impact to her yeah well again it's a very understandable concern isn't it and it's not without some substance behind it because over recent years we have seen cases where in male-dominated arenas, this sort of misplaced thoughts and attitudes, to put it its most neutral, have been at play. So you can understand why a victim is going to be reluctant to come forward because of concerns for their employment and, and their career. So it's going to be held against them. As I said, it's very easy for us to say, well, it's all misplaced and misplaced fear, but it isn't entirely because of what we've seen over recent years in quite high profile cases where there is this sort of unfortunate ring of truth about it. Yeah, and the other element is this assault took place at sea. We don't know where it was, how long it was going to get to take back, whether the practicalities of, you know, you're not just going to be turning around. So that individual is going to have to stay on board with potentially mm. the perpetrator's friends, yeah, colleagues. Yeah. I'm it's sure there was a real feeling of being trapped there. The other thing I was thinking about when reading this is that, you know, our listeners will know that we've talked about military quite often over the last months because there's been a lot of headlines, is that for the Royal Navy, this is a prestigious organisation. You, you know, when I've been growing up, people that were serving in the Royal Navy military, you know, these are incredible roles. That There's been a statement that's been released that's saying, he, you know, he's no longer serving. And they said any activity which falls short of the highest of standards the Royal Navy sets itself is totally unacceptable and not a true reflection of the naval service. Because I'm sure many people that, that you know, have these careers must be absolutely just ashamed of individuals like this tainting the name. Yeah, you know, it's I'm, I'm sure that's absolutely true, absolutely correct. But quite clearly, there's never going to be is there in the foreseeable future a 100% situation where the risk of sexual assault is reduced to zero? No. Um, but 
I think these organisations have still quite clearly got a long way to go in order to A, deal with cultural issues and B, to deal with concerns that if something does happen, the victim doesn't feel under some kind of pressure not to report because of fear of their future in the either in the service or whatever their employment happens to be. And I think we've seen that time and time again in recent years. Okay. And it, it just demonstrates this case just demonstrates, I think, it's a reminder that we've got a long way to go. The other thing that is important to consider in this situation is that, you know, we're, we're thinking about the individual that the assault has happened to, but this person who's now going to be serving a sentence, he will have lost his career, which we don't know how hard he, he get it and whether he has any other prospects of doing anything in future life. You know, being in the Royal Navy could be a very lucrative career. But also mm. the article confirms that he's a father, but now he's on the sex offenders register. So, you know, returning to effectively whatever would be deemed a normal life when his sentence ends means, you know, he may never be able to have children in his house. He may never be able to take his child to school. All things that you, mm. we have to consider. Well, I know that a lot of the, the rape crisis centres have been doing a lot of training within schools in regards to... If you are a perpetrator, not only are you potentially really damaging your victim's life, but it's your own life as well that you will have destroyed because you won't get a normal job. You won't be able to travel around the world. You won't be able to do normal family things. So there's a real consideration, I think, about us talking about that, too. Yes, it's the ripple goes out far and wide, doesn't it? He's gone and messed up his own life. He's gone and messed up his victim's life because the victim's got to live with the consequences of what's happened probably forever. It's not going to go away. And two families affected. And of course, society too, because it's expensive training these people to serve in the Royal Navy. And the cost is immeasurable as a result of what this Carnegie has gone and done by raping his victim. My point of mentioning this is not that if anyone is listening that's been assaulted or anything's happened to them to prevent them from reporting, but actually maybe when, you know, the Navy are doing their core training or military or police, whomever we're talking about, doctors, whatever, that, you know, there's a huge element in that of being like, you know, if you do something, not only are you impacting someone else, but actually your life, your career you know, your family, you've got to think about that. There's been some notorious cases involving the police in the last year or two. And the inspectorate of Constabulary have said, you know, vetting and monitoring has got to be improved and and so on, to put it at its mildest. It seems to me that there's lots of situations, employment situations, whether it's the police or maybe even the armed services, where someone who is recruited at 18, that's still a very young age and particularly with men they're you know generally speaking probably still relatively immature if I can put it like that and they can be very you know people are different you can be very different at the by say the age of 25 you know it's only seven years but people can change uh, a lot in a short period of time so is there a need for revetting and a monitoring to see if there's something about that person's personality or makeup or whatever, which would give the you know the service maybe food for thought to say, well, is this person travelling in the right direction with us? Is this person actually going to be what we need for the Royal yeah. Navy, or is something is now highlighted where we need to take stock and 
review where this person is going. Should they stay in the Navy or should they do something else? Do they need training or or whatever it happens to be? Well, we've talked about this, haven't we, before, Mm. especially in regards to culture in certain organisations that have been very male-dominated before about the boys' club and things like that, and that, that there is a big attempt whether that's successful or not, I don't know, because we don't work in that area, but a, a big attempt to try and stamp this out, because especially when I'm talking about abuse in the Navy, you know, we've had male clients as well. We're not just talking about female survivors here. We're talking about abuse against both sexes. That's right. So I think this is, we've said this before, yet another wake up call. Some of our major institutions are getting um, wake-up calls on a regular basis and one has to question what if anything is changing and I think that's probably a question that we we will be coming back to. Yes most definitely I mean when I saw the article this morning I just thought oh another instead of Mm. being you know shocked that, that, that this assault has happened thinking oh well it was only a few weeks ago that we were talking about the last big one that hit the press and I mean these are the ones that are being reported Mm. You know, and we we know that very many don't go reported or don't hit the press, shall we say. So how widespread it actually is and how much of a problem it really is and needs to be questioned. Exactly. So on that note, we'll draw this podcast to a close. As always, if you have listened to this podcast and you've got any thoughts or questions, please do not hesitate to get in touch with either myself or Danny. If you've got suggestions for future podcasts, please contact us. So wrapping up, it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from Danny. Bye, listeners. Bye now. Thank you for listening to this episode of HJ Talks About Abuse. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcast player. If you'd like to speak to us about something you've heard today, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at aboutabuse at hjtalks.co.uk.